Our scripture lesson for the sermon this evening is in Paul's letter to the Ephesians as we continue a, a quick study of that letter. We come to Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. So this is God's holy word as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the Christians at Ephesus, that city which is on the coast of modern-day Turkey. It was in the Roman province of Asia. And it was a large city and a place where Paul ministered for several years. And here in his Roman imprisonment, he is writing this letter. And so let's read this evening Ephesians chapter 3 again, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing this evening. The last Lord's Day evening, we read in Ephesians 3, Paul's saying, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And then he seemingly digressed from what he was beginning to say into a passage about the mystery the mystery of Christ. Now when I say he digressed, I'm I'm simply stating that Paul seemed to change directions. So many readers make it look make it or it looks to many readers as if that's the case. And for a few sentences he went off on a bit of a tangent, not that he lost his train of thought or that the Holy Spirit was scattered here. In Scripture, even the digressions are inspired and intentional. But Paul wrote of this mystery of Christ by which Gentiles receive the covenant promises given to historic Israel and uh, to us who are adopted as co-heirs with Christ Jesus. And this having been... God's plan all along, Paul's ministry, including his present imprisonment, is in the hands of the Sovereign Lord. After that digression, then, Paul returns to the expression, for this reason. He says there in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what reason is he talking about? Uh, Well, Uh, We have to go back really before the digression, though we can certainly see the digression is involved in the reason that he is forced, as it were, to his knees, to, to, he's compelled to praise God. 
The reason can be found really in chapter 2. It's that God has made one people in Christ. And of course we saw that was a huge part of the, the mystery of Christ. Was that this was something that was unclear perhaps before. Though, though it was stated in the Old Testament. It wasn't as obvious to that many people. And now it's made clear in Christ. That God has made one people in Christ. His church out of people from many nations. He's adopted those who are of the Gentile nations into his true Israel. They are one body, one nation, one household, one temple. And that drives Paul to his knees. Remember what we noted before, as Paul, as a Pharisee, previously would have thought this was disgusting, the notion that Gentiles would, would be joined with Jews? No way. But now he recognizes how this glorifies God, and he's driven to his knees. Typically, Jews, by the way, stood for prayer in Paul's day. Uh, Paul's not advocating a posture for prayer, saying, no, now prayer needs to be done on our knees, whereas it used to be done on our feet, as if sitting or standing or kneeling or lying prostrate uh, would have more merit, one position than the other. We've read scriptures about having holy hands uplifted, and so we'll find churches where people customarily lift up their hands for prayer. Uh, Others customarily humbly fold their hands. Here the custom is to stand for prayer. Other churches sit. There is not a rule from the Bible for this. These are things we're free to determine as seems best, but we find certainly scriptural uh, support for many different postures of prayer. But really what's uh, what he's talking about here is being driven to his knees is that the knowledge of what God has done forces Paul, as it were, to kneel, acknowledging the might and the sovereignty of God the Father. This is a posture that shows reverence for a king. And he says here of the Father in verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The revelation of this mystery of Christ by which the nations have been joined through faith with faithful Israelites in covenant with the Lord causes Paul to be fully conscious of the fact that God has always had a sovereign purpose and plan for every family to make of the families of the earth a family for himself. The Greek word for family used here is patria. It comes from the the word for father, pater. Uh, It can be translated as nation or tribe or clan. The notion is that you have a common father, a common ancestor. Interestingly, it's direct cognate. If any of you have ever studied Latin, I remember uh, as a kid, uh, of course I studied Latin in in college, but uh, when I was a kid I got a hold of of a, uh, a Latin book that I found at my grandparents' house that had belonged to my uncle. And uh, so I tried to teach myself Latin as a, a kid about maybe fifth or sixth grade, and I, I didn't get very far. But I think, I think on the, the first page, uh, we learned this word patria, uh, which means your native land, your, or we might say fatherland. Right? And this uh, is a direct cognate of this uh, Greek word patria, which in this case means more the people group that you belong to. 
As Paul said in Acts 17.26, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So we're not necessarily just talking about family units here, but of the descendants of ancient fathers, like the patriarchs listed in Genesis 11, for example, who were the fathers of nations in Genesis 10. The families of the earth. As Revelation 7-9 tells us, there will be in God's kingdom, in God's family, in this adoptive family that he's created, a great multitude from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages. There's going to be uh, a family for God made of people that he's called out of other earthly families. Paul isn't teaching here the New Age or the occult doctrine uh, of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, uh, whereby everyone is considered a child of God, but that the sovereign Lord does have a plan for all the nations, and that is that he's going to call his own people out from each one. He will be a father to those whom he's called out of every tribe and nation. So Paul can say that the families in heaven and on earth are named from him. That is his redeemed family. In the Bible, the the nations are usually named for their common ancestor, for their father. And again, Paul uses that Greek word that indicates that right here to speak of these families. And what he's saying is that God, the father of Jesus Christ, has made other people his children and is now a father to them. We are named from him. We are God's family. And so Paul is stunned by that and has... He's just compelled, he can't help but fall to his knees before the sovereign power of God that can do such a thing. So then he prays. And his prayer is number one, the first point of the prayer is in verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. This is the power that works in us, as he will say later. Refer to that in verse 20. The power that works in us is that God gives the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. The Holy Spirit comes and strengthens our inner selves. Notice first that Paul's prayer is as normal for him if you compare his prayers and his other letters is for the Ephesian Christians' spiritual well-being. He's not saying that uh, a desire that you all uh, be healthy in body and uh, and maybe make sure you can get your bills paid. So like, no, his, his first concern is your spiritual well-being. Paul desires that they be spiritually strengthened according to the riches of God's glory. As he said back in verse 8, such riches are unsearchable. That is, they're limitless. They're beyond the ability of the human mind to get around because they're, they're without boundary. So a finite mind can't actually fully comprehend infinity. Notice also that Paul says, Paul prays here that the Father would give this power through his Spirit. 
So here we already in this prayer have two persons of the Godhead, two persons of the Trinity at work in this prayer. The Father decrees his plan, the Holy Spirit works it out in his elect. He strengthens us in our inner being, Paul says. That is, he empowers us to do the works which God prepared for us beforehand that he spoke of in chapter 2, in verse 10. So Paul prays for believers' spiritual strength. That's the first thing he prays for. Secondly, he prays for the church to dwell in them, or rather for Christ to dwell in Christians, rather, uh, by faith. That's in verse 17. It begins with the words, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Notice the importance of faith there, but this is the work of the Holy Spirit we saw from the previous verse. So uh, this work of the Holy Spirit causes Christ to dwell in the hearts of believers. Each individual Christian is not only a part of one body, but has a personal, direct relationship with Christ. Uh, Some of the failings that we see in the church in history, even in our day, is that it can be either radically individualized or it can be radically corporatized, in the sense where where we overemphasize the covenant relationship of the church so that sometimes children are considered saved simply because their parents are. Well, that's not how it works. And other times they overly individualize it so that it's just me and Jesus and I don't need the church. We can neither be so corporate in our understanding of theology as to reject the need for a personal, individual relationship with God, nor so individualistic that we would deny the necessity of the visible church. Here, it's corporate, but also Christ dwells in the hearts of each believer. There's a personal, deep relationship of every believer with Jesus Christ. He's dwelling in us. Third, Paul prays in the rest of that verse that you being rooted and grounded in love. That's an incomplete clause, but uh, we'll stop there with it. Christ dwelling in our hearts produces a life grounded in self-giving love for God and his people. The word he uses there is the most common word in the New Testament for love, agape. Agape, actually, if you put the emphasis in the right syllable. Uh, it's the it's a Greek word for self-sacrificial love. The Greeks had lots of different words for different kinds of love. This is the kind of love that Christ has for his church, that husbands are supposed to have for their wives, that Christians are all to have for one another. A self-giving love, and we're supposed to have this for God and for his people. Fourth thing that he prays for is that being rooted and grounded in love, we may, verse 18, be able to, to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. Now some people look at that and they'll they'll say, well, there there are four different kinds of love. There's there's, uh, long love and there's there's wide love and there's deep love and there's there's high love. Uh, No, that's the... You'll search the scriptures in vain for aspects and dimensions of love corresponding to, to width and length and height and depth. But... Paul is emphasizing the greatness of God's love. There's no direction that you can look where you can see the end of God's love. It's the love of God in Christ that 
Nothing, including height nor depth, as Paul says in Romans 8.29, could separate us from that love of God. Paul wants us to grasp that. That's his prayer here for the church, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints, with all of God's holy people, what is this dimensionless love of God, this wide and amazingly deep love. Now, comprehension implies that something small enough, is small enough for our finite minds to fully understand it. But Paul wants us to have the fullness of understanding of this love uh, that is possible. We can never fully realize it because God is infinite and we're not. But he wants us to have as full an understanding as is humanly possible by God's grace. Christians should think on that love and work to live it out. The fifth thing that Paul prays for is to know the love of Christ. It's in verse 19. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. By Paul's own words here, it's a love we can't fully know because it surpasses knowledge. It passes our knowledge. Right? But we must know, we must have intimate understanding of, think of how knowledge is used in Scripture so often. It isn't just having intellectual uh, grasping of something, but it's also to have an intimate relationship. To have this intimate understanding of the love of Christ as fully as possible. This is a, the love of and from Christ that is in our hearts because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be arrived at by human reason. You're not going to be able to talk someone or reason someone into understanding this love. It's the work of God in their hearts. It can only be experienced by those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, and thus in whose hearts Christ dwells. But it's something that Paul prays that we will have as Christians. That means, by the way, that we don't automatically get it the day that we become a believer, uh, the day that we're born again. But we can grow in this. We have it, but we don't have the fullness of it. And so Paul prays that we will grow in this, that we'll know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Uh, that's, in one sense, an oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> How can you know something that passes knowledge? But he wants you to know something that, that as far as you can, what is otherwise going to be too big for you really to grasp. It's like saying, I want you to reach into this big bin full of, of M&Ms <laughs> or whatever your favorite candy is <laughs> or your favorite food and grasp as much of it as you can. You're not going to get it all, but I want you to be able to hold on to as much as possible. It passes your ability to hold in your hand, but get as much as you can. And Paul lastly prays then at the end of verse 19 that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Again, God is not small enough to, for His fullness to be contained in us. <laughs> but He wants us to be filled with God in His fullness. For the 
true God that He is. And the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in a believer because of His union with Christ and the Father. Christ says, we will come and make our home in Him, in that believer. MacArthur describes this as to be so strong, spiritually, so compelled by divine love, that one is totally dominated by the Lord with nothing left of self. Let me just pause there and say, I've got a long way to go before I experience this. Paul is praying that Christians will experience this. MacArthur goes on saying, Human comprehension of the fullness of God is impossible because even the most spiritual and wise believer cannot completely grasp the full extent of God's attributes and characteristics, his power, majesty, wisdom, love, mercy, patience, kindness, and everything he is and does. But believers can experience the greatness of God here, the fullness of Christ in verse chapter 4, verse 13, the fullness of the Spirit in Ephesians 5, 18. Paul prayed for believers to become as godlike as possible. Now, in our own strength, of course, that is impossible. But Paul isn't praying that we will somehow learn a method of being strong or go to the the spiritual gym, so to speak, and, and work out our spirits so that they've got big spiritual muscles and are able then to do this. No, it's by the strength of Christ, by the strength of God at work in us, by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul concludes with this ascription of glory to God, at the same time teaching where it is that we can get such strength. And that's in verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So let me just stop there. Note, God is not limited by what we ask or think. That right there shoots down the absolutely stupid and blasphemous, I don't mind saying, I don't like to belittle people, but the doctrine of the word faith movement that says that God can't do anything in your life unless you give him permission, that is a foolish doctrine. God can do far more abundantly, as it's often translated here, that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. How blasphemous to think God couldn't do something unless I asked or thought of him doing it first. Here Paul says, according to the power that works in us, or many translations again, the the power at work within us. So it's it's a present tense, an ongoing thing. It's something that is now working in every believer and will continue to work. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's the power that works in us that is key here. Knowing the Lord is important, but the devil knows more about God than you or I will likely know in this lifetime. Now, in the hereafter, we'll have eternity to get to know God in ways that the devil would never be able to know. But he knows more right now about the Lord, intellectually speaking, than you and I know. The devil is not infinite, he's finite too, but he has a bigger mind and more experience and has had a lot more time to learn than you or I have had. But he refuses to fall to his knees in adoration. 
It's the power that works in us. The power decreed by the Father, earned by the Son, brought by the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. That power is what enables us, not our own strength, but God's strength, to actually know God for who He really is. To have this kind of comprehension that Paul's talking about here. To grow and grow and grow into this fuller and fuller and fuller understanding of who God is. It's by that sanctifying power that we are enabled to glorify God and by which He works for us, in us, things that are far more abundant than anything we can ask for or think of. Praise God that I don't need to be able to to sit down and write out the things that He can do for me before He could do them. How silly would that be? This power at work within us is according to the riches of God's glory. It comes by the Holy Spirit. It brings Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith. It gives that faith in the first place as we saw in chapter 2. It it roots us and grounds us in Christ's love and causes us to manifest that love. It fills us with the fullness of God. Knowledge of that should drive us, as it did Paul, to our knees. To to adoration, to adoring the triune God who has blessed us beyond all of our understanding. So to Him be glory in the church, among Christ's people and in Christ Jesus Himself, the church's head, forever. So glorify God and do so by growing in this knowledge and in this love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have sent your spirit to indwell every believer, that through him you and the Son have made your home in us. Cause us, we pray, to manifest and live out the incomprehensible love of Christ that we might bring you glory in all things each day, now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.